Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Todd Green. I am a professor of religion at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. And I'm also a scholar who does research on Islamophobia in Europe and the United States. And it's my privilege this afternoon to moderate a session that was inserted into the program at the very last minute, uh, about as last minute as you can get. Uh, and the name of this session is The Study of Religion and Responses to Terrorism, Paris, Beirut, and Beyond. So the larger purpose of this panel discussion and interaction with the audience and conversation is twofold. First, fairly simply, just to reflect upon and interpret the events that took place and unfolded in Paris and Beirut and a number of other events since then, including uh, Nigeria and Mali, uh, to interpret those events, but also with an eye towards how do we as scholars of religion teach about these events and episodes, and how do we help to shape, mold, and deepen the larger public conversation uh, about these events. So it's an opportunity to bring resources together here at the AAR, uh, the best and brightest of, of minds of religion scholarship in this country and in North America, and to uh, sort of join forces to make sense of all this and try to help each other out. At this point, I will let my panelists introduce themselves briefly, their institutional affiliation, their sort of research background, and then I will fill you in on the format of what we're about to do. We'll start with Sarah. Is this on? This is on. Okay. Uh, hi, I'm Sarah Rollins. I am based at Rhodes College in Memphis. I think I'm a little bit of a black sheep in this bunch because my research is actually on Christianity in the ancient world. But I'm working on a monograph about how uh, violent language and violent rhetoric is used in those texts. So I'm sort of used to looking at representations of violence and uh, how it functions and what it provides for people who it's being directed towards and people against it. My name, again, is Stephanie Frank. I'm at Columbia College, Chicago. Um, my work is about untangling the different senses in which the word secularization is used. And both of my first two projects have been on France. Uh, so the problem of laicite is very close to the heart of my own work. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Edward Curtis. I'm at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, a mouthful. I'm the brown sheep of the panel. and. Um, Nice to see you all. And uh, I study Islam uh, uh, in the United States and uh, in the African diaspora, including in Europe. Hi, I'm Joshua Ralston. I'm a lecturer in Muslim-Christian relations at the School of Divinity at the University of Edinburgh. And I work on comparative political theologies, particularly those emerging from the West, both Christian and secular, as well as in the Arab world. Um, good afternoon. I don't even know what time of day it is, but good afternoon. Um, Jerusha Lamte at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, um, where I teach courses on Islam and interreligious engagement and comparative theology. Um, I think the most relevant part of my interest and in research for this is that I'm particularly interested in the, the role of um, public education and public scholarship among academics, so that line or no line between activism and academic work. In terms of the format, um, pretty straightforward. There, no one has prepared any long speech at the beginning here, and no one has brought a paper to present. Uh, this is very conversational. So what I will do in the beginning is I will ask some questions of all the panelists and have them weigh in and to the extent that they're comfortable from their various perspectives of the academic study of religion. And after doing that for a little while, then we'll turn it over and have a Q&A with you in the audience, uh, which is not just a Q&A. I recognize that 
Many of you who are here also have resources and approach this topic from a very particular perspective. And so I really do mean it when I say I want this to be as, as conversational as it can. Now, given the size of the room, uh, it, it's possible if you tried to stand up and ask a question later on, we may not be able to hear you. I can either try to repeat that or you can simply walk up to this microphone which is right here in the middle that I believe is live and you can ask your question from there. But we'll, we'll make it work, okay? So, starting off, first question, it's a kind of a big question, but I know it's a question that all five panelists have a good opinion about, a strong opinion about. When you watch the news coverage of what happened a little over a week ago in Beirut and Paris and beyond, you watch the news and, or read it and you engage with journalists, politicians, intelligence analysts, uh, terrorism uh, experts, etc., what do you think that they are missing as they reflect upon what happened, say, for example, in Paris? I mean, there's a, a dominant narrative that's now emerging from those events. And as scholars of religion and you hear this narrative, what is your reaction? You're thinking they're missing something. And if I could pull them aside and, t and tell them what they're missing, this is what I would tell them. We can, we can start this time with Sarah. Um, uh, a number of things, I think, sort of come to mind uh, for me. Uh, one of them is that they often disconnect religion from politics, economic understandings, and things like this. And this is something that uh, I even struggle with in my work on the ancient world, is that religion is never this autonomous sphere that doesn't animate other spheres of life at the same time. So, but I think it's very easy for people in the media to somehow assign this a unique causal factor, and that provides a lot of um, problems, and I'm sure that this is going to be echoed. Um, by a lot of people on this panel. So automatically, just the, the focus on religion of the perpetrators, I think, is um, automatically problematic because it is, doesn't seem to be the causal factor that other people want it to be. Um, what I w have also been interested, too, that I haven't heard much about is a sort of socioeconomic uh, context of the perpetrators. All I've really heard is that these people come from an immigrant neighborhood um, in either France or have connections with Belgium. So, uh, it, it, again, in my own work, I always look for the socioeconomic context of people to understand the ideas that, and the interpretations that uh, emerge from the ways that they use texts and religious ideas and things like that. Um, so I really haven't seen that in the news media coverage, and I would like to see more of that because, again, I think we need to understand how people... Um, move from very sort of ordinary, mundane context to these sorts of actions. There has to be some kind of explanation um, in there. Um, also, I haven't seen too much this time, although it has happened in past events, about what do we actually mean by terrorism. I know that, that there have been a, a couple people um, in the media in, the, I think, the UK who have tried to avoid the word terrorism and ask what happens if we say the word crime for what these people have done. How does that shift how we understand these sorts of actions and what, what's gained using the word terrorism as opposed to, to crime? So one thing that would be helpful also, I think, would be a reflection on these broader concepts because we are, um, they're very loaded, especially in this case. Um, and I guess also the last thing, just in sort of the interest of some preliminary marks, is to think about, and I know this is probably the most challenging part, is that the media often ignores what might be compelling about carrying out these sorts of violent acts. And, you know, we're not saying we condone them or we sympathize them, but I think it is worth outlining the contours of such an ideology in which something like, 
like the events in Paris or Beirut or any of these events would make sense because I think that's that's the first step in thinking about an explanation is thinking about how this uh, could be persuasive for someone. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the three major attacks of the last week and the fact that they are all, all three of these places, uh, Paris, Beirut, and Mali are connected to France and the French colonial legacy, uh, where, of course, France has a quite different understanding of secularism than we do in the United States. Their notion is centered around uh, freedom from religion, government's freedom from religion, where ours is mostly centered around the idea, uh, the idea of freedom to religion, freedom for religion. Um, and they have, for them, Laïcité is uh, associated with the quest to um, sort of level differences in the public sphere and create a common, distinctively French, and yet at the same time, paradoxically, universalist uh, identity. And I, I think it's not an accident that all three of these attacks uh, are connected to France in this way. In fact, there, I just saw a Reuters interview this morning uh, with a serious uh, uh, terrorist in Syria, um, an ISIS fighter in Syria, who said, we won't forget the arrogance of France and we plan future attacks on French targets. So um, I, I think that the connections, uh, oh, also I should mention that um, in Lebanon, as perhaps you know, there's been a major movement in the past few years against the consociationalism model of uh, religion and politics and toward, uh, there's been a lot of popular support for moving back toward a model more like laicite. So I think that it's not an accident that uh, places in which uh, people who subscribe to uh, forms of religion that require a certain amount of publicity and the union between religion and politics uh, find the French model of the nation state and its colonial echoes extremely vexing and inflaming. I think I'll stop there for now. What is the, what, as I've been consuming news media over the past week or so, what are they missing? I think first and foremost related um, um, to the situation in France is um, the, ex the explanatory power of race and racism in uh, explaining um, what underlying conditions may have produced uh, if you want to call it alienation among certain uh, French uh, people. Um, it, it is exactly uh, a post-colonial um, uh, kind of uh, phenomenon, but and it oftentimes uh, very similar to the ways in which African-American um, freedom fighters in the United States come from middle and upper classes. The same is true um, for terrorists in France who oftentimes are not simply coming from they, the kind of ressentiment that they, that they might be experiencing is uh, when um, you actually, um, um, to quote our former president, uh, Bill Clinton, you play by the rules, you, uh, you, you go to school, you, be, you become educated, um, and then you still... Your, your existence as a human being is over and over again, day after day, your very humanity is questioned. You are, um, 
you you are less than fully human. And I think that, that until we understand the deeply uh, racist nature of French society, um, we will not be able to explain why some Muslims and other um, people um, resort to violence. So I'd say that's been missing. Is a real, I mean, there's really, I, I, at least... And I should tell you, let me locate my media consumption. I've been on Twitter, so that's quite diverse. But then I've also been consuming a lot of national public radio um, over the last week. So I'll make some specific comments about NPR. Um, okay. Um, so I have not heard um, the race angle really explored. I have heard too little, with the exception of the Diane Reem show, I think yesterday, I have heard too little on the geopolitics of the ISIS attacks. I agree, of course, that the French context is absolutely essential. And let's add Hezbollah in Lebanon and the Russians. Um, so the, this was a rational act of asymmetrical warfare. Let's be very clear about what it was. It's a rational act of asymmetrical warfare. ISIS is hemmed in, right? They can't go. They can't take Baghdad. They, they're, they're losing power to Kurds. Right, Kurdish forces. They can't go into Turkey. They can't go into southern Syria. They can't go into Lebanon. They have nowhere left to go. And they are being hit extremely hard by the, um, first of all, by the U.S. and the French. We have to remember, I did hear this in British media. I was reading The Guardian, I think, that um, since Charlie Hebdo, um, the president of France, uh, François Hollande, told the French military to step up its attacks. And before these incidents, the French had flown 1,300 sorties attacking ISIS positions. So that's a very significant uh, military uh, commitment. And in a war, you're going to expect your enemy to uh, respond in some way to something like that, and that's exactly what's happened. The Russians, um, of course, are booing um, um, Assad, uh, Bashar al-Assad, the uh, dictatorial president of Syria. And, um, and so, uh, once again, they become a target, um, right, with the, uh, the Sinai. And then finally, as we know, Hezbollah, the, um, the um, party in Lebanon, also is a huge supporter of Assad's regime. And so... It makes sense to me that they would, that ISIS would hit uh, a neighborhood uh, in Beirut, um, where um, in order to terrorize uh, people uh, who are supporters uh, of Hezbollah. So, uh, so there is there is a geopolitics here. I don't think, at least on NPR, the the reporting on the geopolitics was very good in the past week. Uh, for example, a, a person with whom I have, uh, let me name names, whom I think is really not very good at her job as the counterterrorism uh, expert on NPR is Dino, Dina Temple Raston. Um, she consistently underperforms in trying to explain, um, you know, uh, terrorism. She said that this was an example. Her analysis of the ISIS attacks was that. Um, that ISIS was a local movement that um, started local from local concerns and then has, like so many other local movements, has now gone transnational. Now, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the transnational nature of groups like ISIS and al-Qaeda, 
right? From the very beginning, their utopian caliphate, you know, in this case, a, a pro-caliphate movement that wants to question the nation state as a container and proper, you know, sort of organ, uh, container for political organization. It, from its very origins, it's coming out of that because, as we know, right, ISIS in many ways came out of al-Qaeda in Iraq, and so AQI. And, and so I, I, that kind of analysis that it starts local and then goes transnational, from the very beginning it's transnational, and it is situated not only in that locality, but through the savvy use of social media and various networks, it is from its very origins a global movement. Not a very successful one, by the way. I mean, it may seem wildly successful because of its um, pornographic violence, Right, but in the end, we're talking about uh, tens of thousands, maybe thirty thousand, you know, supporters. Right, something like that. I mean, the question is not oftentimes why there are so many Muslim terrorists. It's exactly what Charles Kurzman says in *The Missing Martyrs*. It's why there are so few Muslim terrorists. Right. That's the and I mean, in terms of, of looking at these things. Okay, I've um, said enough for now. Thanks. The media that I've been following is mostly in the UK and in Europe, since that's where I'm located, although I, I'm, by my accent, obviously an American, um, so have some of that as well. But I think the, the thing that troubles me, both about the media and about our discourse, is that we seem to continually come back to the same sort of frameworks of either or. Either ISIS is Islamic or it's not. Either the Quran supports jihad or it doesn't. Either this is religious or secular. Either we have to care about Beirut and Syria or we have to care about uh, the West. And you could go on and on about these sorts of either-ors that partly depend on the sort of binaries between religion and politics or between Christianity and Islam. Uh, but it, they're the sort of tropes that we fall back on. And I, I would like to see us be able to talk in ways that are much more nuanced and complex about a both-and about the ways in which there are Islamic ideologies and frameworks and theologies that fuel um, these sort of transnational groups. Now, those are contested and debated and rejected uh, by the majority of Muslims, uh, including very traditional Muslim uh, scholars of fiqh. Uh, so it's not a dominant position, but it still is uh, framed in many ways in these Islamic terms. Uh, and I, I see us continually falling into these sort of options. Either this is sanctioned by the Quran or it isn't. Either this is religion or this is politics. Either this is socioeconomic and French or it is religious. And I still think that that, that entire framework uh, ties our hands in how we understand it. Uh, let me give you a, an example. Uh, Daesh or ISIS, when they issued a statement after the attacks in Paris, how much they were involved, we're not really sure in terms of Syria, but they have this entire campaign of media from their magazine that's, you know, runs 70 pages long. It just came out right after. Uh, and when they talked about it, they talk about Paris as the seat of vice and prostitution and secularism on the one hand, so the category of the secular West, but their dominant way of actually talking about the West is through the language of Christendom and the Crusaders. So France and the West become emblematic of both something called the secular sort of a religious West, but also indicative of this sort of Christendom. Now, you could say that ISIS is just erratic, 
right? That they just don't know about the division between religion and politics. They don't don't know about uh, that these are two different things, or that France is actually quite secular. But I actually think they're onto something that many scholars of theories of secularism, Talal Assad, uh, Sabah Mahmoud, Elizabeth Shackman Hurd, are trying to get at, in that the way that religion and politics that division functions, especially by Western scholars and often by Christian theologians, which I count myself, is to sort of dismiss a vast range of the diversity of Islamic thought. And what ISIS is doing by using this trope of the West as both secular and Christian isn't actually um, nonsensical, but quite deeply uh, fixed in the way that the rhetoric around Christianity in the West functions within certain Arab contexts especially. And you see often uh, Western theologians, ethicists, politicians fall back into this same sort of rhetoric. Either it's a clash of the secular West versus the, the usually the Arab, but the Muslim world, or it's sort of a Christendom versus Dar al-Islam model, which I've seen some on Twitter, some very prominent Catholic ethicists use that very language. And I think that sort of dichotomy that, that we have to either talk in these both ands, I mean, these either ors, uh, is, is a little bit constricting, that we have to decide if it's really just socioeconomic or just religious, as if that category is fixed. And I would like to see more discourse around the multiple ways that we are constructed as humans and the way that we're both ands. Okay, so I'm at the end of the table, so many of the things I would like to say have already been said, so I could just not talk. Um, but I will talk anyway. Um, so as many people have pointed out already, one of the things that this conversation, and I'm not going to speak about um, ISIS rhetoric, I'm going to speak about the political, uh, politician discourse, media discourse, public discourse on this. One of the things that is clearly missing here is nuance. I'd like to refine that slightly and characterize it slightly differently. I think one of the things that is missing in all of these conversations, which have their unique particularities, is common religious literacy. There is a lack of understanding of how people relate to religion. And so that should be of concern to all of us in this building, because that's not Islam-specific, that's not terrorism-specific, that's, that's not very specific. It is a common lack of understanding of how, as was indicated, religion meshes with and coexists with other facets of identity. This idea that people, and we know this, but some, the rhetoric does not display it, that people have multiple facets to their identities, and those facets are entangled and entwined. We sometimes like to refer to this as intersectionality. You know, you're not just your race, you're not just your culture, you're not just your religion, and any given moment you may be in a different relationship with these various facets. So this is one of the ways it is displayed. I'd like to add another layer to this religious literacy. Seems to be a lack of understanding in public discourse of the fact, as was just pointed out, this either-or discourse of either the Quran says it or it doesn't. This is religious literacy. This is not how people have ever related to the religious text. People have always made choices, always made interpretations, always privileged and emphasized parts of text. And any storyline or narrative that depicts one group of people as not engaging in that is naive and unnuanced and frankly not grounded in any kind of historical work or understanding of that religious tradition or of religion in general. 
Now, what is so odd about that is I do think that some of this either-or stuff, as Joshua pointed out, comes out of particular Christian thought, but then is projected onto this other, the Muslim other, as if they are emblematic of all of our internal woes. Like they have to, they're being so religious-y that they are manifesting on the religion side of the religion that we think is problematic. It's a very weird portrayal. One other piece of this that I would say is that it's not just religious illiteracy. It's not just that we don't talk in public discourse about how texts are used, how people are not just like receptacles. You know, I'm not a glass that then my Muslim identity is poured into. It's not that simple. And then you get little cookie-cutter versions of Muslims or Protestants or Jews or Buddhists, and they're all the same. It's not just that level that's missing. There's also religious or inter-religious illiteracy. We cannot overlook that. I teach in Manhattan. I teach people who I consider to be wildly educated, and I can tell you on a daily basis that I encounter anti-Muslim, Islamophobic microaggressions from people that I admire intellectually, professionally. It happens all the time, and that's lack of knowledge and lack of interest and lack of need to have interest. So that's another thing in the public discourse. Where's the necessity? People who live as minorities in this country of all different types have to know other groups, right? Have to. There's a necessity. Have to navigate. But that is missing in the public discourse. There's no real need to know about Muslims as people. So one other point. Coming back to the idea of racism, it was alluded to, I believe, by Edward, racism in the context of post-colonial and that these are all sites in somehow, some way connected to France. I also think that there's another component of racism here, or some kind of ism here, and that is that we are projecting a whole group of people as less than human, and we are overlooking in public discourse that the people who bear really the most brunt of all of this are the ones that are being dehumanized, and so how that gets glossed over. Is phenomenally interesting,、um, and I just want to make one final point about this. It's not only religious illiteracy or lack of nuance from the standpoint of media or politicians or other people who would negatively portray Islam or portray ISIS as the most Islam of Islaminess.、Um, I like. I think those are good terms. You know, Islami is a very descriptive term. It's not only there that we see lack of nuance. One of the things that concerns me the most, in fact, is not just that dehumanizing, all-or-nothing, either-or kind of rhetoric. That's something that's happened many times before. What concerns me actually more is the response to it, because the response to that rhetoric in public discourse, whether it be on TV, whether it be to politicians, is no, this is not Islam. No, Islam is good. That is bad. It's the same exact unnuanced, religiously illiterate response. And yes, it's positive, and I understand it. I mean, I, ha- I don't have any desire to be situated in the same place as ISIS. I don't want to, you know, I want to disown that. I want to push that as far away from myself as possible. But I am concerned that the way we parrot the same discourse in response to that discourse does nothing to destabilize the narrative or change it or interject what many people in this room have, which is an understanding of religion.
and how it works and how it meshes with other things. So this question of how we introduce a new narrative rather than just being reactive or responsive to the same simplified rhetoric is very, I don't have the answer, but maybe someone in here does. So thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, as I was listening to these responses, um, some of these themes that started to pop up, the either-or framework, the religious literacy, racism, geopolitics, it connects to this other question I wanted to ask in, in relation to the first one, which is one, one aspect of the, this narrative that's emerging from Paris that I can sort of discern is this notion that we, something new has happened. We're in some sort of new chapter. Uh, we've turned the page. Some, some sort of book metaphor, right? So as you as scholars of religion reflect upon what happened just over a week ago, whether it be Paris or Beirut or other attacks that have happened since then, what do you think of this notion that this is something new? To what extent is this a new episode in, in the history, for example, of uh, uh, violent extremism in, in the West? And to what extent is this a, a continuation or there are strong continuities between what happened, say, in Paris and what has happened in 9-11 or, or, uh, or the Madrid or London bombings or even Charlie Hebdo earlier this year? Any thoughts on that? And we don't have to go in any particular order this time. Uh, I just have some very brief comments on this. Uh, I wouldn't say that this is, um, you know, brand new uh, without, you know, any, any precedence or anything. I think it's important to keep in mind that uh, violence is, it's not just the act, right? It's a, um, it's a performance that's meant to communicate something. Uh, and so what I think, in my opinion, when I, when I hear this kind of question, what's interesting is the what the symbolic value of something like what happened in, in Paris might be. Because when you think about 9-11 or some other um, uh, events in the past, you have um, the Pentagon, which is a sort of, that's aimed sort of at the government, a sort of political commentary. Then you have um, the World Trade Center, which is aimed at a kind of comment on uh, a certain form of capitalism, perhaps, or uh, <coughs> sort of not at everyday people, I guess we could say. Um, attacks on embassies similarly aren't uh, aren't directed at everyday people. Um, the USS Cole is another example. That's sort of a, a, a directed attack on the military or the government or something. So I think what is is disturbing about especially Paris, um, but also anything that takes place in this, these kind of public random places, is that it's 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 a much broader attack on culture and normalcy, um, which. I think, uh, I mean, for me, I find that it's, it's much more difficult to explain because there the symbols don't have, the symbolic nature of the violence doesn't have the same kind of um, tidy explanation in the same way as we're going to attack, you know, the, the seat of your military power or something like that. Um, so that's what I see as what might make this a different kind, not brand new. Obviously, uh, religious violence has a long, long history, but the efforts to really terrorize ordinary people, I think, strikes me as relatively new. I'm not sure about the Paris situation being new. In, in some sense, it is, but in another sense, there is simply an extension of what's been the lived reality for most Arabs in the Levant and in Iraq since at least 2011, if not since 2003. Um, and what we're seeing, both in terms of the migration crisis, 
for the refugee crisis as well as the recent attacks in, in, in Paris and in Charlie Hebdo is what's been a day in day out reality for most people on the ground in Syria and in Iraq and at times in Israel and Palestine and in Lebanon and in Egypt and in Libya since at least 2011. Uh, now, which we've been used to post-World War II, keeping, and I say we as a Westerner at the moment, keeping our wars off our territory. So even though there's been an increasing amount of violence in Latin America or in Sub-Saharan Africa and Nigeria or especially in the Arab world since 2003, uh, there's an assumption that that can be kept away from us even if we're doing it, right? That, and, and I mean, the drone is sort of emblematic of this, that, that, that violence can be enacted by a Western nation state, but not actually influence that state. And I think what some of what's happening, both in terms of the migration movement, is that something that's been a lived reality in Lebanon, in Jordan, in Syria, in Iraq, and in Turkey since 2000 and let's say early 2012, which is a migrant crisis, which is a refugee crisis, which is an underfunding um, by everyone, is suddenly brought to light in the West, which I think what's new is that those of us who live in the West suddenly have eyes to see what has been an ongoing reality for most people. And that has a lot to do with some of the things we've been talking about. This, I'm going to speak as a, um, a theologian. That's another facet of are we, are we identifying the parts of our identity that we're speaking from. I also, I would say that this is not new in the sense that there seems to be a violence problem in general on the rise. I just, I, I know we want to classify this as a particular type of violence, but this notion that people will perpetrate these heinous crimes in random locations, I mean, we see this all the time. We saw it in Charleston. It's happening here. It's not that different. Um, I mean, it's very different, but it's also hate and violence. And I know we like to categorize it as something totally different, but there are aspects of it that are the same and speak to the type of humanity that we are cultivating. Um, and, and so that's just my theological comment. So i make a confession. Um, when this happened uh, in Paris and then in Beirut, my reaction was this is not new at all. That was honestly that my, and maybe I'm not thinking about it correctly, um, but it seems to me to be, first of all, a, a very modern story in which asymmetrical warfare is a kind of performance which using the amplification available through media is a way of resisting um, colonialism. I, 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 and um, so, uh, and that furthermore, that the the overall cause of that um, of, of, of that use of asymmetrical warfare is the deeply oppressive nature of Western hegemony that comes not only abroad but is perfected through the genocide and the uh, Jim Crow segregation of domestic uh, minorities. Um, so, you know, from a, from a, for those of us who are U.S. historians, 
you know, um, we, we long ago um, flipped American history on its head with Edmund Morgan's American Slavery, American Freedom, right, that America's not so much founded on freedom, but American freedom is completely dependent upon American slavery. There is no white freedom without black slavery in America, argued Morgan. And, and, and so, you know, so I think that from the very, what we live in, um, we, we live uh, right in the center of um, this imperial complex. And to not expect resistance to it, it seems to me to be unrealistic. And it, honestly, if you think about the amount of violence that was actually had here, um, as much as we should mourn every single person who dies through a violent act, I mean, one of the things that Charlie Kurzman's excellent book, The Missing Martyr, shows is just how much we don't mourn the other kinds of violence, including the 15 to 16,000 gun deaths in the United States, 32,000 uh, people who kill themselves, you know, and then uh, all think about all the state-directed, you know, the 100,000 to a million people in Iraq who have died in the last um, several years since the two wars. I mean, uh, do we even mourn the one to three million Vietnamese that the U.S. Uh, killed? Uh, have we really mourned that? And so it seems to me that um, that I, unfortunately, perhaps I'm simply hardened. Perhaps it's because I've been I've lived in the Middle East and um, I've seen that I've seen that um, what is supposedly you know oh well of course this happened in Beirut that attitude right oh of course it happened in Beirut having lived in the Middle East I see how violent my own country the United States is because actually on the streets of Amman it ain't that violent friends uh, and so uh, and so you know um, having the advantage of getting out of the of, of the country helps one see just how violent we are in East Indianapolis and Ferguson and all over uh, this country, and that it seems to me an old story, unfortunately. I could echo uh, a lot of things that have been said, but rather than doing that, I'll just add one uh, piece to the way in which I think the media has constructed, uh, particularly the Paris attack as new, insofar as, for instance, the Charlie, back to the point that Sarah was making, I think the uh, the way the media has portrayed this is there, what we've seen generally is highly symbolic targeted attacks against people who are viewed as like apexes or apices, I suppose, of secular, secularism. Uh, the Charlie Hebdo cartoonists, the, when Osama bin Laden, what did he call the World Trade Center, the, the twin towers of idolatry or something like this. Um, whereas, of course, the violence that we saw uh, this week was uh, largely directed against random people. Um, and the way in which I think this was, at least the way I saw it explained, was the difference between ISIS and Al-Qaeda, uh, where Al-Qaeda is thought to have, a, well, it has announced some sort of policy of uh, um, avoiding the deaths of innocents, whereas, of course, ISIS's MO is targeting innocents. Um, and I, I think this goes back to the comment that several people have made about uh, the media sort of unnuanced view of how religious people are motivated to act as though people who are the warriors of ISIS are simply uh, sort of whatever robots that actualize ISIS policy and similarly with Al-Qaeda fighters. Uh, so I, I think that the portrayal, I mean, obviously the idea that this is something new um, is doing narrative work. And I think part of the narrative work it's doing is shoring up this, this kind of impoverished idea of religious motivation. 
Okay. Um, next question I want to ask, I, I sent some questions to them in advance, but I'm going off script right now already, <laughs> just giving them a heads up. But, but I, I, I think pivoting to this, this notion of how do we as religion scholars respond to this, I mean, what is our role in responding to it, irrespective of what our uh, specializations are, I think is important. So last year, Omid Safi wrote this piece about ISIS, the atrocities of ISIS, and I'm going to quote him and then ask the question. So he writes, I wonder what it means to be responsible in a world of ISIS, in a world of American empire, in a world of one-fifth of humanity living in extreme poverty, in a world of sound bites where if it bleeds, it leads. I wonder if we can have a response more principled than simply saying that, quote, the actions of ISIS do not really represent the vast majority of Muslims around the world, end quote. What do you think is a responsible reaction or a principal reaction to ISIS and to these events of the recent weeks as religion scholars in light of the complexities, all the complexities that you're pointing to? What is a principled, responsible reaction on our part? Well, I can tell you what I, I was, um, when this happened, I was raking leaves and, um, uh, and, um, I'm not sure why this, I'm not sure this is principled or, or, or just very reactionary, but, um, I, um, I got an idea for an op-ed. So I, I try, occasionally I try to write op-eds to try to intervene. I want to try to change storylines or challenge storylines. So it's coming out in the Washington Post tomorrow and it's about, the West's Muslim warriors. And um, it's the idea is rather uh, simple and probably too simplistic. And sometimes when I'm operating on, I step out of my, you know, sort of peer-reviewed scholarly editor kind of mind, and I try to speak to people in the same way that I have to speak to them at um, community groups. They're not necessarily trained to understand the categories that we constantly use and refer to, right? And so, um, you know, there's more popular audience, but it's simply that if you, um, it was, it's simply a reminder that um, you're right that there are a lot of Muslim warriors in the West. Most of them um, wear your uniform and they die for you um, all the time. And uh, so it actually traces the history of Muslims in Western armies from 711 until today in 750 words or less. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, not that I'm, I'm actually an advocate of nonviolence, but I did want to, I did want to name, as a scholar in part, I wanted to name when Muslims are violent, when and where and why are they violent? Most Muslims in the West are violent, at least when the war Muslim warriors, because they are members of the U.S. Armed Forces, uh, tens of thousands in the French Army, um, uh, not quite clear how many in the U.K.'s uh, Armed Forces. But those are, those are the people who are, you know, and, and as members of our militaries, by the way, they are um, killing far more people because they're part of, you know, our our military, which is a much more effective killing machine than um, these attackers in Paris or in Beirut. And so, you know, so I want to try to, and for most Americans, frankly, they're going to say, that's good. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, um, but I do hope that, I mean, just something a little, uh, occasionally it seems to me, in order to get placed in the Post or the Times or something, it has to be counterintuitive, generally speaking, and it, um, unless you're a powerful brand name, right? Um, and, um, and it has to be, um, 
timely and it has to be quick and it can't be overly theoretical or, or frankly, um, I've found oftentimes overly nuanced. I think that this bridging into the public discourse to offer, and I assume we're talking because it's coming from Omid, that is talking about public response. So a public principled response that's accessible to a wide audience. And I think the question of nuances is spot on. That is the question. You know, how do you communicate information that does not fall into the old tropes or memes that are circulating, whether it is falling into them by adding to them or by just being the inverse of them? I will just say that I have watched since September 11th a lot of this ping pong match of rhetoric and trying to get a little bit of a handhold perhaps in the public discourse. And I've begun to think that the promotion of Muslims as like everybody else and therefore likable has not actually gotten us to the end point that we want. Muslims aren't really that violent. If they're violent, and I think this piece is great, so don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying that my impression, and I almost want to use the term politics of respectability, which has a lot of baggage in other places, but that if Muslims are likable enough, good enough, nice enough in their community, enough like everybody else, that somehow they will eventually not be dehumanized. And what I have frankly seen since 9-11 is that that's not true. We have people on TV, and thankfully AAR issued an anti-Muslim rhetoric in response to Trump today, but we have people on TV calling for Muslims to, we're the equivalent of a star like in the Holocaust. And we have, that is able to be on TV. And we have people who, I don't know for what reason, but think that, they would like to vote for a person like that. I, I don't even know if that concerns me more than the fact that that is on TV. And no one pulls the plug on it. So I don't know how much. And all the statistics say that anti-Muslim sentiment is on the rise. So this portrayal of Muslims as like the good neighbor next door, I'm not sure that has gotten us to where we wanted it to get us. I think Muslims are largely the good neighbor next door. But I'm wondering if there might a principled response might have more to do with framing it as a social justice and civil rights issue. That it's not about making these people into you. It's about the principles that we have in play. And if you adhere to those principles, or you believe in those principles, then you better start thinking about this community as a community that deserves those principles as well. Because look, I can walk out of my house with my eight-year-old daughter in my hand on school, and I will see on the back of a bus hateful Islamophobic rhetoric. You won't see that about other groups. I'm not saying it doesn't exist about other groups. I see that all the time. But that can be put on a bus in New York City. Come on, that's like, that, something's going on there. It hasn't gotten us to where we want. So I think a principled response has more to do with making these issues and this rhetoric parallel to other human rights and civil rights efforts that have happened. Not just making Muslims out to be nice enough to like or familiar enough to like. Can I real quick? Just one quick thought. I wonder if you would entertain the notion that um, different strategies work for different audiences. And so that actually that, at least in my on-the-ground activism, interfaith uh, activism has worked 
for millions of Americans who have, you know, visited a mosque for the first time or, you know, and that actually that there were, there have been some improvements in the opinion polls on the number of Americans who have a favorable view of Muslims and Islam, but there are far more, the numbers have gone up higher for those who have unfavorables. And I wonder if for those uh, for the the um, the unfavorables, if you will, if other techniques, other principled stands uh, need to be used, uh, including uh, the civil rights. But that actually, I don't know. Uh, coming from the rural Midwest, I'm from Southern Illinois, a town called Mount Vernon. I do see, I do occasionally meet earnest people who are very willing to you know meet someone of a different faith and talk to them and try to understand. It does happen. So I wonder if we preserve and continue to nurture that kind of activity while also doing some other activities for other segmented audiences. Yeah, no, I, I would absolutely agree with that. I mean, the more the better. I mean, from all angles. I do just have the concern there is a lot, and we were talking about it on a panel this morning, there is in play in this public discourse a good Muslim, bad Muslim rhetoric that cannot be overlooked. And just to shock you all, extremely that good muslim looks a whole lot like you know certain characteristics and has to you know wear their allegiance to this country visibly and clearly and never question and never problematize and so some of the stuff that has been said on this panel if i got up in certain contexts and said that it would be like relinquishing my passport to the united states <laughs> you know there's things that some muslims can't say because of that rhetoric that's in play and so let me just make another point about this principled response a principled response will involve allies to muslims who can say things that muslims themselves of course can say but will have a different angle and take on it as well so that allies component is very important but allies who listen um, I wonder if it actually might be possible to segue into the question about uh, the effect that ISIS is having on Muslim identities mm -hmm. at this point, because sure. this is kind of coming up, and I had some uh, thoughts on this. I mean, just generally wanted to you know, point out the unfortunate nature of having to reactively um, construct your identity against these kind of events, uh, and where people have to, have to come out and, and claim, this is not who I am, we're not violent. Uh, the expectation that a community, wider community of people has to, uh, you know, uh, speak against these, these sorts of violence and make, actually m making Muslims define themselves in, in terms of violence. And what I find particularly uh, frustrating about that is that uh, in many cases, because the media asks people to do this and asks spokespe spokespeople from the different communities to do this, uh, is that it actually lets ISIS control the discourse about Muslim identities. Um, and if the comments down there about how this should be reconceived in terms of uh, a question of social justice, then it, they're also letting ISIS control the discourse of social justice, which I think is, is just a, um, a horrible situation to, to get ourselves into by uh, allowing the media to kind of continue this uh, pursuit of the Muslim identity. And let me broaden that question, too, that Sarah started with. This is this idea of to what ex how has the rise of ISIS sort of a, had an impact on the way Muslim identity is constructed in Europe and the United States? But, but we can add other religious communities, too, because I, I don't think this takes place in isolation with just one community. Any religious community uh, following the news, engaging, and responding to these events will incorporate them into their understanding of who they are and how they relate to the other. So... 
any of you on the panel can respond to either Muslim communities or any other religious community to the extent you feel free to do so. So I'll speak briefly as a Christian theologian uh, whose primary conversation partners are Muslims. I think, um, as Jerusha was saying, there's this strange balance between what I'm able to say as a Christian theologian about Islam and uh, especially being critical of the United States or critical of the ways in which uh, we have been completely absent from the Syrian crisis uh, since 2011 that a Muslim can't say. But at the same time, I think that um, there is, let's just be honest, a crisis not just in the Muslim world, but also in, in the Christian world, in the Jewish world, in whatever that means, right, in all its multiplicities, in, in, our, in our globalized world around ethics, around particularity and, and difference. You can see this in um, Israel-Palestine. You can see it in the rhetoric of U.S. responses to uh, this event and the language around Muslims being targeted. But you can also see it in the Muslim world. And you can see it in the kind of discourses at, at mosques. But as a Christian theologian, I'm not sure that my place is to offer a robust criticism in public of Islamic thought and practice. I may do that in my writing as I engage in complex thinking about Islam. Uh, and, and I'm making arguments about what I think is a more promising route for Christian-Muslim exchange. But in terms of a public discourse, I think that that much more lies with someone, uh, my colleague, she just disappeared, uh, Professor Mona Siddiqui, who just on uh, Wednesday in the BBC Thought for the Day and on Thursday in the Telegraph made very strong criticisms as a Muslim of the Muslim community in Britain's sort of preoccupation with issues of uh, the lengths of beards and uh, gender segregation and saying we're missing the moral, spiritual, and ethical heart of our religion and it's getting hollowed out, um, not because we're ISIS, but because we're, in order to not talk about ISIS, we're not talking about the heart of our traditions. And I think that's true also as a Christian theologian, that our political discourse has been so um, controlled by these narratives that the broader issues and debates about justice, about what it means to live in a complex world in a particular way that is still open to the other, are not being addressed. Um, and I think... At, I think we have to find a better way to, to talk about that. That's me veering into being a Christian political ethicist more than uh, a scholar of Christian-Muslim relationship. I'll just pose briefly a, a quick question that I have um, on, on this general topic. Because, of course, one of the ways we talk a lot about uh, the secularist nation-state's model of religion is in terms of its privatization, right? And... Uh, I, I too, you know, I, I think that one of the major features of the media's construction of uh, Muslim identity in the in the wake of the terrorist attacks has been indeed to call on moderate moderate Muslims to disavow violence. And you see, I mean, you see explicit pressure being put uh, on Muslims on Fox News or whatever to actually. I, I still haven't heard anyone come out and condemn violence. Um, <laughs> which is, of course, absurd. But uh, what I'm interested in is, so then you, you see these sort of organic movements, right? Like on Twitter, the hashtag not in my name. There are all these viral videos of people in Paris holding up signs, a, a blindfolded man holding a sign that says, I'm a Muslim, but I'm not a terrorist. And he holds out his hands. So 
I'm, I'm fascinated by this kind of uh, deprivatization of identity that seems to have followed. You know, it's, it's no longer, it looks to me like this has put pressure on the idea that religion is fine as long as you don't talk about it in public. And in fact, there is a great deal of public pressure to make people affirm their religious identities in public. Um, so uh, if the, uh, the question is how has ISIS, I'd, I'd broaden that to how has a transnational um, Islamic groups that are political in nature and challenge the political status quo in some way, how have their presence and their um, limited effectiveness, somewhat effective, not so effective that they actually overturn the nation-state order of things, but somewhat effective, um, you know, how has that impacted religious identity? And um, in order to understand that in the United States, of course, and Todd, you can talk about this probably better than I can, I mean, one has to, um, um, uh, I hate to use the word resurrect, so let me think of a... <laughs> Uh, oh, well, let's go ahead and resurrect it. <laughs> resurrect the old, um, the extent to which um, Islamophobia, or whatever you would like it to call it, Islam as a as a, as a sign, is constitutive of American political identities from the colonial age until present. And and that and when we think back to Cotton Mather's apocalypticism, for example, and we think back to Thomas Jefferson's criticisms of Islam as being a form of uh, despotism, um, as opposed to what he wanted to create in the United States, right? And and the story, and we think of General Blackjack Pershing saying, the only thing we can do with all these moral rebels is to simply kill them all. Right in world in in when in the U.S. occupation of the Philippines, and the story goes on and on and on. The idea of their the presence of trans Muslim transnational Muslim terrorists has been very it's either been mutually constitutive or very instrumental to um, the uh, growth and the sustaining nature of premillennial dispensationalism among American and European Christians. So I think it's, it's, it, it's a very, uh, it has an effect in, in that way. I think that it's um, a, adoption and adaption as a sort of the fearsome Muslim transnational terrorist has been very useful to state building projects across um, Africa and Asia and Europe. Um, I can think, for example, the whole Hindutva uh, project, uh, um, uh, the BJP party, um, in part rests on the idea of that, of that fearsome Muslim warrior um, damaging our identity, thus we must pur purify India of its un impure um, uh, and uh, elements and go back to um, our very essence, who we are as a people, as an Indian people. Uh, there's no, there's a direct link to uh, Benjamin Netanyahu when he was still an author in the 1980s. He edited a book of many, a scholarly book about the ways in which Islam was, you know, anti-democratic and um, was, um, uh, must be contained. And so we can, we must understand the rise of, um, or in part the rise of Netanyahu, but also a, 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 a kind of um, Jewish religious nationalism in Israel that is more powerful than ever, that is specifically defined against the um, 
Islamist terrorist, a terrorist in, in quotes. And then finally, it's been um, very use, It's been a very useful trope for um, anti-democratic leaders in the Muslim world, like King Abdullah of Jordan or um, various leaders in Central Asia, who use um, who use the fearsome Muslim terrorists as a way of seizing greater control of Islamic speech in their countries and trying to, against all hope, um, trying to seize back. Islam, which became a sort of a site for contestation of political identity, of democratic action, trying to, to delegitimize through, in King Abdullah's case, the, the Amman message, for example, um, which, you know, trying to define what is and is not a proper Muslim and who and who cannot um, pronounce excommunication uh, on someone else. All of those state, you know, state-born efforts um, have have made use of, have instrumentalized the presence of um, Muslim um, terrorist slash political resistance. So I want to go back to one of the some of the comments that have been made about the things that aren't focused on given this um, crucible in which Muslim identity is being shaped. And I just want to emphasize something very simple and that is that we should not underestimate the psychological and emotive impact of this stuff upon Muslims and Muslim identity, and especially Muslim youth. And so I'm not speaking as a scholar here. I could speak as a parent. I could speak as uh, someone who self-identifies as a Muslim as a number of ways. But I just want us to, when we point to what is not happening, we also need to understand that it takes a lot of energy to perpetually defend and legitimate oneself in the face of an onslaught. You know, I was on Twitter the other day. You know, a lot of us know each other from Twitter up here. Um, probably, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm seeing my friends who are activists and scholars at the top of this game saying, you know what broke me down today? My child texted me and asked, could they really round us up and put us in camps? Now, look, I know a lot of people are just like, oh, it's not really going to happen. It's happened before. And we always like to pretend like we're past the past, but we seem to repeat it a whole lot. And so I just want to underscore this psychological impact. And that's not a religious thing, and that's not an Islam thing. That's a human thing. One does not stand in the face of belittling and dehumanization every day and come out unscathed. I don't think the majority of Muslims in this country are going to be beat down by it. Most of the ones I know are not going to be. But it is a, you have to exert energy in the face of that. It's a privilege to not have to do that. I mean, it's Audre Lorde who says that they'll waste your time forcing you to define yourself, right? And they won't let you do the work you have at hand. So when we talk about the parts of Islam that are not being cultivated or, or responded to or this isn't being developed, well, there's a lot of energy going into just basically making sure that people can walk down the street and not being attacked. It's not an excuse. It's just a reality. And so that is part of the identity that's being shaped. I think among younger, what we would call millennial Muslims, because we have a lot of them that come through some of our social justice programs, that another aspect of the Muslim identity that's being shaped is a wild and wonderful social activism. It's a generation of activists who have decided, if you're going to keep on me, that I'm going to assert my presence and my voice. That's wonderful. That's hopeful. 
One, one last question, and then I want to turn it over to the audience for, for an, uh, a conversation, a bigger conversation. But we keep coming back to, and many of your answers are sort of touching on this idea of the anti-Muslim narrative, the, broadly speaking, Islamophobia, the challenges of responding to it. And it's something that's very personal to me. I, I, I've spent a lot of my time these days as a public scholar uh, talking about Islamophobia. I write op-ed pieces. I speak to non-specialists and audiences. I get a lot of the same questions such as, when will Muslims speak out against terrorism? And I used to answer those questions, and then I started to answer them more briefly, and then I started to be sort of a smart-ass about the way I answer them. Uh, and, and then I've gotten to the point where I, 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 don't, I don't even know I can take that question seriously, right? And yet, in that public role, I still sort of go through some sort of script. as like, well, okay, I actually need to respond in some way. Um, but it's this larger question of how do you dismantle Islamophobia? How do you dismantle this prejudice under what I'm guessing from what I'm hearing from all of you is the larger assumption that just presenting a larger public or the media or anti-Muslim politicians with facts doesn't dismantle prejudice. An Islamophobe can know the five pillars of Islam and still be a bigot, right? Uh, so, so how, as scholars of religion, would you say is the best way to go about dismantling this prejudice if it's not simply I can use my scholarly knowledge and tell them the stuff I know about Islam or give them data and, and, and they'll just stop, oh, okay, I, di I didn't realize that. So how do we dismantle this prejudice, this framework? Any thoughts? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, I think one of, one of the things that we do is teach. And while if you're in a public audience or you're in a faculty lounge with some of your colleagues in other departments, <laughs> there's maybe not a teachability. And that, that's indicative of some problems. But most of our students, at least most of my students, are actually quite engaged and interested, even if they have no background in Islam. Um, the, the Tuesday after the attacks in Paris, I'm teaching a Christian-Muslim relations course, and we were slated... Uh, by happenstance or providence, to be reading Saeed Qutb's essay called A Hideous Schizophrenia, a critique of Christianity. <laughs> now, um, it's a very critical text of Christian theologies of law, of politics, of um, the body and the soul and the ways that Christianity sort of divided the world and the self into all of these multiple ways of being. And I'm sitting here and, you know, the student gives their presentation about how Qutb is often thought of as sort of this intellectual founder of groups like Al-Qaeda or Daesh or, or these other. But she was actually able to note the complexity of Qutb's thinking, of recognizing that Qutb himself was repressed by Nasser, and actually without sort of sugarcoating the problems in Qutb's thought, also recognized some of the ways in which his critique, she speaking as a, actually it was a study abroad student, so it was an American, not a Brit, uh, found that some of his critiques of her Christianity hit home and, and were true or things that she struggled with. And so I think introducing students in classrooms or in public discourses that are more than just your one-off hot topics, but actually introduce students to the sort of complexity of Islamic thought and Islamic practice, of the diversity, um, and allows genuine encounters between people of different ideologies, of different faiths or no faiths, and that sort of long, hard work. Um, Iyad uh, al-Baghdadi, which I know a lot of people follow on, on Twitter, said something, if the solution was easy, 
which is what everyone wants, we would do it. But actually, whatever solution we have to, to ISIS, to Islamophobia, is going to be complicated, multi-pronged, and long-term. And of course, we're not going to want to do that. I just wanted to jump in because I also had the immediate thought of our teaching as a site where uh, this contestation can be effective, in part because we have a, a, a bigger space to work with. I'm teaching a religion and violence class right now, and uh, we were reading George Bush and Osama bin Laden, uh, two addresses uh, on October 7, 2001, the day after the Paris attack. So... Um, but what I wanted to say is that I have found it really useful, not only um, in contesting Islamophobia, but also using questions of religion and violence to open up broader questions in the study of religion that I think are really important for undergraduates who might not be religious studies majors, who might only take one religious studies class. Um, I, I found that this work actually uh, dovetails really nicely because uh, you one really excellent way to problematize Islamophobia is to ask students to think about how religion motivates people, right? Like what the complexity of that motivation looks like and asking them to think about the historical contingency of our definition of religion as distinct from politics and asking them to think about the way in which constructing uh, the terror attacks we've seen as religious violence makes it irrational and different from the kinds of violence that we perform as a nation that are thus sort of submerged uh, as political or violence legitimized by the state or something like this. And I have found all, all of these things um, really useful in helping students rethink um, some of the narratives that are underpinning their Islamophobia, which they are getting uh, mostly from the media, I think. I just also wanted to make a quick comment on, on the teaching aspect, which I also think is a very important site. I teach at a small liberal arts college, uh, and, what, and the course that, that I was teaching, um, I guess the Monday after the Paris attacks, was uh, Humanities 101 course, which is basically sort of Western canonical literature, those sorts of things. We were scheduled to read Plato that day, and I pretty much said, Plato will be here on Wednesday. So <laughs> I sort of put aside the time to allow the students to talk about their reflections, how they've seen representations of this happen. Uh, and I think that 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 was actually really important just to signal to them that this is something that is that is worth stopping to talk about and that that it is a part just of a sort of general education that that we think about things as as their teachers and that they're allowed to also have these kinds of questions and it was it was in particular very interesting for me because uh, it's a it's all freshmen and they were about five when 9/11 happened. So this is one of the most uh, vivid uh, acts of terrorism that they've seen so far in their life, and only now are they sort of um, able to to have some critical distance from it. And so we sort of talked through uh, how things are represented here, how violence is represented on in the media, how violence might be expected to be taken by the perpetrators, those sorts of things. Uh, and I think that's really important because then they they are people that can um, sort of disseminate it, I think, from there. So I think I would also agree that, that sites of teaching are, are also important. So my, my first response to um, Todd's question about how to combat Islamophobia is to keep at it and to keep hammering away and to not give up on it. Um, 
to keep calling it out. I, you know, I was talking to people the other day and to students the other day, and I said, look, it's not, you know, I've been with people who have said, well, you know, this happens before. People, you know, new groups of people come in. We saw it with the Irish. We saw it with Catholics. It happens. It, you know, it happens with Jewish people. I, I would say happening. I, I don't know. It's ongoing there, <laughs> clearly. Um, but I don't know that we can just wait for time to get rid of the fear and hate. And so I would say that there's a call to action, and on the most basic level, even if a person does not have the knowledge with which to refute the claims of anti-Muslim rhetoric or Islamophobic rhetoric, the most basic action you can do is to stand up and call it out. If there's a, but what about this, what about this? It's just not acceptable. Calling it out is very important, because right now it's socially acceptable. It's, you know, that's, a, that's a, a different level. It's not something people hide. People don't care about walking up to you in the street and calling you a terrorist or attacking a woman on a subway platform who's wearing a scarf. They do that in public. So the social acceptability of calling it out is one thing I would say. Now, teaching, of course, and we're all teachers, so I echo every single thing that people say on here. But then the persistence the staying on it is over. It doesn't go out of mode. It is part of the conversation. One other facet I would say, and this goes back to my comments before about the parroting the discourse of, of oversimplified and unnuanced, like that is Islam, not Islam rhetoric, or Islam is totally bad, or no, Islam's all completely good rhetoric. Um, one of the things I think that can help there and also help with anti-Muslim and Islamophobic rhetoric is exposing the diversity of Muslim practice, of Muslim thought, of Muslim cultures. And I would say that we all share responsibility here because many Muslims hide and obscure that diversity too. Sometimes we present, oh well the true is in true Islam you you know you can't do that. You know, Muslims can't drink. Well a lot of Muslims drink, newsflash, okay? Now and so we can talk about Islamic law and we can talk about particular formulations and we can talk about our personal opinions about that, but we sometimes hide the diversity and we talk very normatively only about Islam, about this can be Islam and that can't be Islam. And that feeds into that Islamophobic foundation. So one of the things is exposing the diversity, both intellectually, but letting people have exposure to more Muslims. So that's the, another piece I would just mention, more visibility. And of course, there are numerically going to be no, more Muslims in this country. But the visibility of people who are Muslim is important. To be, to be able to identify different figures and just, I mean, the truth is that personal interaction and personal experience is very valuable in combating these kind of rhetoric. I mean, people do say, well, I hear that on the news, but I know this person at the gym who's, you know, like the coolest person I've ever met. You know, it doesn't add up. That creates a cognitive dissonance. Um, and then I just would underscore the point I made before. Allies, allies, allies. You know, and it's not just allies to the Muslim community. I think Muslims need to be allies to other communities and that that is really important in combating anti-Muslim and Islamophobic rhetoric. Now, of course, I did just say it takes a lot of energy to defend yourself. So I understand that, it, you know, one only has so much to give. But the truth is what I mean, what do people say? You know, it's justice, not just us. 
And so being involved in other causes and for Muslims themselves to recognize the intersectionality of things and to stand up for other causes. For instance, I mean, they're whole Muslim for Ferguson and Muslims for Black Lives Matter movements. These are very powerful movements, and my suspicion is that they will change some of the discourse because people say they were out there with us. And those people, those, those people who were out in Ferguson, Muslims who were out there, weren't out there because they want people to take care of Muslims only. They were out there because they care. Don't get me wrong. But the impact of that on anti-Muslim rhetoric will be, I think. Um, just real quick poll. How many of you teach something somewhere about Islam or Muslims during your teaching in a year? Yeah, most most of you. I figured that's uh, one of the reasons you were here. Yeah, and for those of you who want to do more or who want to do, remember you have you know a thousand scholars running around here of Islam and Muslim societies, and we no matter what your topic, we can come up with a, a suggestion. <laughs> Whether you're teaching the U.S. or Japan or whatever you're teaching, we can come up with a suggestion. So. Um, Muslims are indeed everywhere. I'm sorry, Mr. Trump. Uh, but uh, they, all, they have been for a long time. Uh, and so, you know, if you need, but if you want more, if you want more content, please let us know. We will, we will help you, whether it's the colonial era of America or you name it, the South Asian subcontinent. We've got suggestions. Uh, I want to echo Jerusha's comment about coalition politics. I think we are in a moment when I see many of my students once again, um, I mean, it's, it's bringing back memories, uh, marching, beating drums on campus. I see, I see the beginnings of a progressive rainbow coalition of uh, immigration activists, labor activists, uh, Black Lives Matter activists, LGBT activists, and boycott, divestment, and sanction activists against Israel. A, a left coalition coming together, and um, it, is, it is powerful, especially, I think, on a working-class campus like mine where, where people really are coming at these things from their own experience. People, you know, I mean, the... the, the, the the students in my classroom are the cafeteria workers who are trying to make $11 an hour, for example. So um, this is so we have a um, we have an opportunity to cultivate that, to encourage it. Um, I think those of us who can, especially the full professors among us, we don't got any more promotions to get. So, I mean, we might as well just go for it. What's stopping us? Uh, it's uh, certainly I consider it to be my obligation to, to do that kind of work uh, and to, um, to make sure that, that I'm, I'm showing up for that. So I really do want to advocate for scholar activism. Um, I think that, that only within a context of coalition politics can Islamophobia be challenged. Uh, I, I also didn't mention, by the way, peace and justice groups and religious groups from Jewish Voice for Peace uh, to the Friends of Seville, North America, to many other uh, groups that are part of this emerging you know, coalition. You certainly already see it on social media, and we're starting to see it on a working-class campus in Indiana. So, um, so I think there is a lot of hope there, and Jerusha can, um, can link us up to all these Muslim groups she's talking about, about uh, the, the, act, the activists who are the young and saying, I'm not going to be afraid anymore to confront the oppression where I see it. Uh, so, but having said that, I want to I also make a pitch 
um, for on, in the scholar activist part to um, to also not forget. We talked a lot about teaching, but to also not forget the scholarship. Um, I don't know about you. I, somehow, right now, even with three kids with whom I'm active, um, uh, I am three young children. I am able to continue a pretty aggressive publication program and do this community work, this community-engaged work. Um, and I'm, I, I understand it makes perfect sense if not everybody can do that. Somehow or another, I have found some kind of balance there. Um, I'm filling my life up with lots of with the things I love, basically, with this work for justice, with the publication and and with the family, but I would say on the on the publication that it um, research is is the world that at least for me I control the most. I really can't control what goes on in my classroom half the time. I mean, the stu students take me where they want to go, you know, and I want to follow them there sometimes and want to meet their needs. I don't want them just to be following me. And for those of you who have raised children, you know I have no control over that. You just show up and do your best. But in doing the publications, in thinking about and I do write about Islamophobia and about Muslims, but I think writing about any kind of situation um, in which you're talking about uh, ways of empowerment um, and ways of justice, I think for me that is the world that I most control, and I think it is very important for us to perpetuate um, our power as scholars. Yes, it does do something, um, of course, in terms of one's marketability. But it's wonderful if that marketability is linked to a kind of analysis that your research helps you to do that otherwise, you know, that you don't have a space for. And um, so in this, in this uh, as we're fighting Islamophobia, you know, some of us have more privilege than others. But, I mean, for example, young Muslim scholars who are uh, assistant professors are constantly called on to represent. And those of us who aren't assistant professors, we need to be standing up and representing so that uh, young Muslim scholars, of whom there are many more than there were just 20 years ago at the AAR, can have time um, to do their um, scholarship and not always having to solve all camp campus problems and, and world problems. Okay, uh, let's turn it over to a broader conversation uh, with you in the audience. This could be uh, questions you might have. It could be insights that you might have from your own particular experiences as religion scholars. There is a microphone here in the middle. If, if you're not able to walk to the microphone, you're welcome to stand up in, in your seat and ask a question. I'll try to repeat it. But otherwise, uh, you can go walk to the microphone and you'll be heard better at least. So, yes. Okay, let me, let me just, in case everyone didn't hear the question, repeat the two part of it. One was, how can we better equip our students, basically, to combat Islamophobia, if I heard that correctly. And then the second is, how can we help empower our students to be leaders in activism on our campuses? The, two, the first question about refuting, and, and I would refer to it as the Facebook wars. Um, my <laughs> sister is routinely involved in the Facebook wars, and she's become a Facebook activist on my behalf, apparently. She does not self-identify as Muslim, so um, she's frequently fighting with people on Facebook and asking the same question. And to be honest, I don't have the answer, but I just want to comment on refutation, I mean, refuting what people say. I was once in... Um, 
at a church giving a talk, and, and the talk was part of a series, so t- bear with me on this. The talk that day was on Islamic theological anthropology, of course, accessible format. But it was part of a longer thing. I was talking about religious diversity, and so I was talking about, you know, how various Islamic thinkers think of the human being and how that plays into their, you know, ideas about religious diversity. But someone stood up at the end of the talk and said, you know, and I'm sure many people on this panel and in this room have had this experience, you know, just stood up and said, you know, this is all well and good. But I need you to prove to me that Islam is not violent or none of this matters. Look, how can it's like a proof that can't be proved, you know? And so there's something about refutation, like refuting what people are asking that I think it has, you have to switch it up on them. You, I mean, those, if someone has something ingrained in their head and they've decided that that's where their, you know, their heels are stuck on the ground and issue, every bit of evidence that you throw at them, it usually that's not, you don't usually argue them into believing your position. You usually argue them into calling you a name on Facebook. I mean, that's really what you usually argue to, right? And so what I would say, and it would be context and person-specific, context-specific, audience-specific, and person-specific, and that's that you got to figure out, as a teacher, how to flip it around on them. Find out something about that person. Why are they asking the question? What is it they're concerned about? What is it they care about? And can you somehow come around the corner to connect issues of Islamophobia and anti-Muslim sentiment to something that they already have an investment in. Because if you can figure that out, you know, then you've got them talking about something else, or you can figure out somehow to talk to them and say, well, you know, it's kind of like this. But you have to know your context and your audience. So there's no one-size-fits-all, but I, I'm not, I, I, just from my experience in public education and in the classroom, refuting things is never really successful. I don't think we believe enough in the art of debate anymore to think that that would be successful. Mm-hmm. We just end up um, galvanizing ourselves into our respective positions. So we've got to figure out what's going on. That person who asked me that question, I was convinced, and I say this often, that it was an act of catharsis, that this was a person who was scared mm-hmm. and just needed someone to tell them that they would be okay. You know, that's, you know that's, but that's context specific. So that's one thing I would say. Let me jump in and express my great support uh, for that because I've, I've um, also found that this, this idea of having to give counterexamples or refutations isn't especially productive because then you're, you're kind of playing a game, a back and forth with the person. And so they're, they have a worldview and, and you have a worldview or you have a way of looking at things. And they're receiving this bit of evidence or something, and they're, they're putting it into what they already know. So I think it's important, especially when it comes to students, is to kind of pull back and um, see what's actually making this playing field that you're on, which is assumptions about race, assumptions about religion, um, assumptions about ethnicity, and things like that. And I think that's what's important, especially for students, to be able to identify, because if they become equipped with with those sorts of skills, these sort of great critical thinking skills that we all want to encourage our students to have, uh, then it allows them to take those skills actually to any kind of presentation of a tradition or a political view or a speech or anything like that and ask what is what is the narrative or the framework here and uh, 
what's outside of that that's allowing it to be constructed as such. So just general critical thinking skills, I think, are important to encourage. All right. There's a couple points I want to make. Uh, one is I think the importance of, mean t of not suppressing ideas that are hateful even or that might be perceived as such in the thing. The story was told about A.L. Ryman, who was the longtime uh, general counsel for the Southern California ACLU back in the 40s. He, he uh, went to court for the right of Gerald L.K. Smith, who was the David Duke of his day, to speak at a public building. And then that very night, he was there to picket him, showing it was not at all inconsistent with his values of opposing hate, but allowing it. I mean, I point that out because right now there is in California, using this long precedent, a move to make the State Department definition of anti-Semitism a basis for suppressing virtually all criticism of the State of Israel. I'm not talking, and this is not just the boycott, divest, and sanction. This is so broad that Practically, you could not say anything bad about Israel for, for fear of, uh, of falling. Mercifully, this is not getting very far, but it's got its it's got support in the California legislature, and it sure among particular and uh, sure. And I think, and secondly, in dealing with it, we have to deal with nuances. That that that. What happened in Paris is complex. It involves. I would, if it was one book, I would want to assign my kid. I'm not an academic, but I think one book that people need to read is Jihad versus Muck World, which describes the polar, which was written in the 1990s, which saw the polarization between mass consumer society and narrow religious nationalism, both of which the author saw as harmful to civil society. And I think we have to look at the com very complex forces that happen of consumer culture and so on that we saw in the, in the post-World War II era, but that accelerated in the 90s and just created these resentments. And uh, we can point that out without apologizing for terrorism. And I think we do need nuances, but we also need to recognize the very real dangers of suppressing speech. This could backfire. I mean, I mean, the State Department definition of terrorism is there was enough, there was enough uh, backlash against that that they shelved it, but that was even being considered. And this was by supposedly liberal democratic people in West Side liberal Democrats who would be who are on the right side of every issue. This wasn't reactionary supporting that attempt to support to suppress this. So, taking one of those points, maybe because we we touched on it earlier, then maybe we could come back to it, this idea of nuance. Um, and I think particularly the challenges facing someone who's a scholar of religion who wants to engage in public discourse and public debate. I can't remember which one of you said, but. You know, I, I think it may have been you, Edward, the idea of when you're writing op-ed pieces or, or whatnot, that uh, nuance is, is not what they're looking for. And I think <laughs> any of us who've done media interviews know that the way the questions are even framed, all, you know, almost pigeonhole you into the, the either-or sort of way of thinking that Josh was talking about earlier. 
is, is this an uphill battle, an impossible task to, to shape and change public discourse about religion, religion and violence, ISIS, Paris? Is it impossible to change that in a way that we can start nuancing it? Can religion scholars do anything to help deepen and nuance the conversation that we're not currently doing? Well, I, I think your point about the relationship between scholarship and government concerns has become particularly acute to me now teaching in the UK, um, partly because of the unique nature of the UK, but essentially I have to sign documents that say I'm going to be on the lookout for anti-extremism. I have to take attendance in my tutorials for every single student, uh, and the government needs to be able to come and check on those students to see if they're in class. Uh, it was uh, supposed to only be for international students to make sure that they weren't skipping on their visa, but the universities refused that and said we'll have to do it for everyone and you have to look through all the data. Uh, I had to register with the government that I was downloading ISIS materials uh, for my research. Um, and there's concerns that if one teaches a class on political Islam, I mean there's this story, I don't know if anyone saw this recently in the UK, someone was arrested uh, from the University of St. Andrews who's in a class, you know, they have this major program in terrorism, and they were just simply a Muslim who was reading textbooks on terrorism and were arrested for possible terror activity. I don't, I mean, this goes to your question about the state of California um, dealing with, with how we teach. So I think some of the questions is, if you're teaching courses on political Islam, if you're teaching courses on the history of anti-Semitism in, in Christianity or anti-Islamic rhetoric in Christianity, that means also teaching texts that are ugly, complicated, um, and diffuse. And so, I mean, if I'm just teaching one class on Islam and I have one-off reading, I'm not going to give them Sayyid Qutb. But this is in a long-ranging class. So the, I think some of the tension is how do you show some of – just in terms of this thing we call political Islam, there's a wide range of diversity. And I think there was an article by Mark Lynch, uh, who's a political scientist, just in Washington Post a few days ago, about how how we've reverted to even worse ways of talking about political Islam. A few years ago, we were much better at no noticing the differences between Al-Qaeda, for instance, or ISIS as these sort of militant Islamist transnational groups, and groups like Anadda or even the Brotherhood, who are using democ democratic processes to come into power, and that there's a wide range of diversity simply within political Islam. But this word political Islam or Islamists has some, somehow become, uh, like uh, others were saying, indicative of just violence and terrorism, when in fact there is in political Islam, as, a, as someone who teaches in, in, in theology, some actual real connections to trends in liberation theology. And so how do you actually have a more nuanced conversation where the options aren't political Islam as this militant terrorism, and I think it's vital to be able to have those nuanced discussions because when most people hear that Anata won a democratically elected – well, they didn't know this – that uh, an Islamist group won an election and then lost an election and then left – wrote a constitution that doesn't have the word Sharia anywhere in it. Like this confounds people how this could still be political Islam. And so one of the things simply around political Islam is that we need to be able to develop a discourse beyond what – either the government or the state is telling us is appropriate, both in our teaching and in our, in our rhetoric. Because if not, we're just going to fall into the apologist. Like I need to either um, 
if I critique Cece's actions in relationship to the brotherhood, that means I must be supporting the brotherhood. I mean, that, that's just silly and nonsensical. I could be critical of some aspects of the brotherhood and sympathetic to others. But this notion that we have to sort of categorize this thing called political Islam in this little part here and never talk about it except for as if it's only Daesh, if it's only sort of beheadings and burnings. But we're not allowed uh, to talk about it in other ways, and we're not allowed to say, well, just remember Bashar al-Assad has killed, you know, if ISIS has killed their thousands, Bashar al-Assad's killed his ten thousands. Just real quick to, um, to verify what you're saying, the, the copy editor yesterday tried to insert the word Islamist, um, this is the copy editor from the Washington Post, for Muslim, I said Muslim terrorist group. And they wanted to use the word Islamist political group. And, so, and I, I have seen over the last 10 years a transition where Islamism is um, used in a very, very narrow way. And the same is true with jihadis, uh, jihadism or jihadis. And um, I fought back um, uh, um, hard, um, and uh, the editor said, okay, that's fine. We, we won't use it. On a practical level, um, going to the public side of the nuance and, and to the question again, um, just very practically, you know, public discourse is actually kind of an art. And I think, I think that relig scholars of religion, especially those who study Islam, have a lot to proffer to reshaping the public discourse. But frankly, a lot of us don't have the skills to do that. We're not trained in media arts. We don't know how to give concise and, and you know, two-second responses to things. And we do frequently find ourselves pushed into those predetermined boxes of it can be A and B, and we're all, I don't know about you, but I was always the person who wrote in, you know, the extra response on the multiple choice um, test. So that doesn't work so well. And so you fumble around and what you come off in the 30 seconds on news or in the 400 world article response, you come off as fumbling and unclear. Um, and so one thing on a very practical level is that there are programs that offer media training for scholars who want to do public education. Auburn Seminary has one of the best in the country, and they teach you how to interject into the public discourse just very practical skills. And so how to destabilize the narrative and how if someone's saying, no, you have to say they're violent or not, you can say, I will, you know, you can say something else and how to do that in your two seconds of time that you might have on the news if you choose to take go into the public discourse. I think that there's something that scholars of religion, well, a lot of things that are to be added and that if you're really interested in doing that, you can take one of those training programs and develop the skills to do that. I liked your um, I liked your first question about what um, was left out in the media. That was, and the answers were very um, uh, suggestive and evocative. And um, one thing that occurs to me uh, would be the um, and I've lost track of some of the news in the last couple of days, but that three month uh, state of emergency in France. Mm -hmm. And you know where are the stories about Muslim communities, French Muslim communities, you know, um, various communities, you know, around in the suburbs of Paris and throughout you know, France, you know, what's happening inside of those communities uh, with all the raids, uh, military and police and, and such. So I'm really, really curious about that. And it makes me think, too, about here in the United States in terms of the kind of crackdowns that I think, you know, we can come to expect. Um, 
I teach. Uh, my name's Ken Esty. I'm a graduate of Union Theological Seminary, um, and uh, I teach at uh, Brooklyn College. And at Brooklyn College, uh, it's revealed, you know, it's everybody has to say alleged, but feels pretty strong that, you know, as a police informant who was planted inside of the um, Students for Justice in Palestine, the SJP uh, um, formation on uh, you know Brooklyn College campus, that that informant had been around for like two or three years. And, and that wasn't the first instance of, um, you know, police harassment um, and surveillance, you know, of our students. And, um, you know, given the, uh, the last question and your response, I mean, you know, that whole luxury of like, hey, well, hey, maybe I'll be an ally, maybe not. I mean, you know, to the extent that we're downloading materials, you know, going online, trying to figure out, you know, things and, you know, what kind of, you know, do we really have that option after all? I mean, we're probably being, you know, equally surveilled or watched or whatever's going on. It's not an option. Well, maybe I'll be an ally. I don't think that option really exists, you know, in a context uh, in which, you know, our students are being surveilled. Who knows what else is going on? So I think it's uh, really all hands on deck. But um, so I pose that as a comment, but also that question about what's happening to, um, you know, uh, Muslims in France. Don't think we're hearing too much about that. And what kind of other kind of what other kinds of crackdowns do you think we can come to expect on our campuses? I can briefly speak to about the, the, the surveillance, which is you know we've we've been doing this for a while now, particularly with Muslim communities after 9/11 and NYPD's program, infamous now, right? Uh, the demographics unit, uh, um, mosque crawlers. You've heard that term. Uh, infiltrating Muslim communities, a lot a lot of Muslim student organizations on campuses. Uh, that a version of that program was sort of shut down in 2014, but but there's a semblance of it that's still very active, I think, and um, I expect that to be ratcheted up again. Yeah. Even though the reason it was shut down, or some portion of it was shut down, is because they admitted that it didn't work. Right. Surprise, surveillance doesn't work in terms of racial profiling or ethnic profiling or religious profiling, but but in in times of crisis like this, that mentality that sort of become big again, like, oh, you know, we got to be doing something, so surveillance must be it. We cast this wide net over an entire community, and certainly this will work. It reminds me also of the registration program, now that Trump is talking about another one, um, NSEERS, if you're familiar with NSEERS. It was established in 2002 initially by the Department of Justice, then taken over and inherited by uh, uh, the DHS, and lasted, I think, until about 2011, where non-immigrant, young non-immigrant Muslim men, basically, were, were required to register. Uh, with the government, again, with this idea that you cast this wide net of, and, and sort of kind of keep tabs on them, it'll, you'll, you'll catch terrorists. Like the NYPD program, zero terrorist convictions came from that as well. Uh, so we've tried this. It's always failed, but we will be trying it again. And I, 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 I almost certain, it's not just Donald Trump, I'm almost certain we'll be doing this again. Um, I just wanted to speak to the point, to speak to the question of uh, the, the, particularly the French media covering the raids uh, that have happened in the wake of the terrorist attacks, and uh, I, I think uh, I, just to substantiate se things several people have said, actually I think it also goes to um, reinforce your point about the King of Jordan using the figure of the Muslim fighter to as sort of a state power grab. Uh, one of the ways in which this uh, neighborhood, uh, just outside Brussels, that no one's ever talked about before, Molenbeek, uh, has been constructed is as this kind of urban jungle uh, filled with people of Moroccan descent that the police dare not have, have dared not go into, and this this has been uh, sort of 
considered it like that's how it became a hotbed of terrorism was the absence of police surveillance. And so this is now used to justify uh, what seems to be pretty significant uh, police intervention. But the, the French media has been um, very much emphasizing the wide scale of the interventions and uh, it's their incredible efficacy in rounding up terrorists and not the civil liberties concerns that we all have. Hello, my name, my name is Robert Smith. I'm the Jerusalem Global Gateway Director for the University of Notre Dame. And I, I want to thank everyone for this wonderful panel and to the, you know, thank the AAR for allowing it to happen. And I want to come back to this question of how do we combat Islamophobia in this context of the United States. My sense is that we need to recognize that anti-Islamic thought is woven into the historical fabric of Anglo-American society and culture. This is not a new thing. The context of the European reformations themselves was both anti-Catholic and anti-Islamic. The two heads of the Antichrist were identified by Martin Luther and John Calvin as the Pope and the Turk. Mm -hmm. The problem is that there's a fundamental competition between Islamic culture and Christian culture in military, economic, and theological terms. I was in a panel earlier today where there was a joke about Islamic supersessionism and trying to avoid that. But it's true. There are fundamental disagreements. But Islamophobia is not just latent and passive. It is actively cultivated in Western society because armed conflicts are profitable the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is profitable. Christian Zionism is a strand within Anglo-Protestant traditions committed not just to the defense of the state of Israel, but to the denigration of Islam and Muslims. And so I wonder if Islamophobia is really the best category to discuss what we're discussing today, because it's not fear, but hatred. I would therefore suggest something like Islamo-contempt, echoing the post-Holocaust rejection of the so-called teaching of contempt regarding Jews, because this goes further than cowering fear to active attempts to destroy. Thank you, Robert. Um, we share some sympathies and theological traditions in former living places. Uh, <laughs> It, it, yeah, yeah. not to disclose, except for he's a Lutheran and I'm Reformed. Uh, he's yeah, he's going straight to hell. <laughs> I, I, think your, I, I, was, I, I think your point was extremely... I mean, this isn't... The history of Western Christian discourse, we've come to terms on how deeply anti-Jewish Christian theology has been, and following you know, Schmidt and others, that this has been sort of migrated from just Christian theology to the political sphere. Um, in, But I don't think we've come to terms at how deeply woven into both Christian theology, but also into Western liberalism, not just fear, but contempt of Muslims is. So um, one of the questions that I've, one of my students writing papers on that I have to grade on the flight back to Scotland is the ways in which Christian tropes of Muhammad continue to reverberate in contemporary society. 
the, the, the cartoons didn't come from nothing. If you read John of Damascus, if you read Martin Luther, if you even read heroes of liberalism like John Locke or, or Mill, there are not just passing, but explicitly anti-Islamic uh, tropes. So, I mean, Joseph Massad has written, recently written a book on Islam and liberalism, the ways in which the liberal tradition itself is built in some ways on these, um, not just fears, but deep sense of othering uh, of the Islamic tradition. And I think speaking here as a Christian theologian and as a political theologian, something needs to happen for us, if there's any other Christian theologians in the audience, of readdressing the ways in which Christian theologians talk about Islam and Muslims. Because if you actually look at the wide range of, of Christian thinkers, whether they're liberal Protestants, Roman Catholics, evangelicals, it's the same sort of two or three essentialist tropes, even amongst really well-educated people that are trying hard. Uh, we need to come to terms with something similar to what happened after the Shoah, where Christians simply sit and listen to Muslim thinkers where Christian theologians began to talk about Islam in much more nuanced terms. And I would simply echo what Robert said, uh, especially, and, and let's, uh, here, and let me add, this isn't just Christian theologians who need, need to do this, especially secular, liberal, political theory needs to do this. Because so much of political theory is based on the sort of myth of the West, whether it's laissez-faire or whether it's church-state division, as being this pristine, beautiful thing and those Muslims with their deen wa dawla, their religion in the state, they just muck it all up. Um, we, I think we need to really start thinking hard about other ways of thinking about this. Uh, folks are doing it, Talal Assad, William Conley, Saba Mahmoud, all of these folks, but I think we need to take them much more seriously in the way that we as uh, scholars of religion, whether we're um, Islamic studies, whether we're Jewish studies, we're uh, cultural studies, whether we're, we're theology and philosophy, need to come to terms with these. So I simply thank you. I think that this is very important in light of the public side because I would agree with with both of the remarks on this, but it also raises questions about what exactly is going on in the public discourse without nuance because I would argue that the media discourse in particular serves to obscure all this history, that they don't want to talk about the history, there's no references to it, and what ends up happening there in the discourse is as if it's, just the facts on the ground. You know, the we are scared or we are hateful because they are bad and they do bad things over and over and over again. And so it never talks about the history. It never talks about the underpinnings of the worldview, especially of certain liberal strands of thought um, that are ensconced in this. And so this might be an, an area of, um, it's very concerning, but of opportunity, right? To expose these kind of historical um connections and entanglements, especially because for people who are well-meaning yet situated in that context, it might actually make a really big difference because they're probably capable of the self-reflective work that needs to happen there to say, whoa, I'm not just, I'm not just feeling this rhetoric because those people did something bad or scary. I'm feeling it because I've been raised in traditions and generations where there are images and symbols and language and things of that sort that reference this other tradition in a negative fashion. Can I just say, um, are there any medievalists in the crowd? No medievalists? Oh, there's one. One lonely medievalist. Okay, so he can correct me. But I've been, I've been doing quite a lot of reading in medieval studies, 
And it strikes me that um, one has to, that it is the project of liberalism to separate Islam from the West as, as a political project because it is so incredibly hard to disentangle uh, Arabic language and um, Muslim Jewish and Christian thinking in both Southern and Eastern Europe from the West and who the, the West is. And I, um, so I, um, as I've, I've found that to be a powerful way of, of responding. And for those of you who want a free resource, the National Endowment for the Humanities created a bookshelf of, called Muslim Journeys Bookshelf. It has wonderful online um, uh, resources, but it sent a, a bookshelf of like 30 books and four films to a thousand libraries across the U.S. and all its territories. So your students can get these for, for get a hold of these for free. And one of the one of the sections of the bookshelf is uh, all about the medieval uh, West and how much how many linkages there there are and. I'm Albert Hernandez. I'm the dean of the faculty at the Isle of School of Theology and the academic vice president. And yes, I am a medievalist. I specialize in medieval Iberia. Um, I have this battle all the time at my own professional guild, the Medieval Academy of America. Ironically, folks, uh, this is for all of you in attendance at AAR. We are coming off of a decade in medieval studies that has represented sort of a golden age for medieval studies uh, not since the 1950s and 60s have crusade studies been as booming as they have been in the wake of 9-11. Um, some medievalists, because they are positioned at particular research institutions, can actually hide behind uh, the, uh, the notion of pure research. Uh, but not too long ago, I was at one of our medieval academy meetings where uh, there was a panel very much like this, and the question was uh, teaching medieval Iberia in a post-9-11 world and in a world that has also been now affected by, by ISIL. Um, and one of the panelists, I was surprised that in this day and age, one of the panelists still said, I, don't, I try to keep current events out of my research and out of my teaching in the classroom. Fortunately, there was a collective gasp from the audience. <laughs> which made me feel very at home and grounded. And I remember telling my colleagues in the Medieval Academy that as a professor at a theological school at a seminary, my students would never allow me that luxury because my students are always forcing me to struggle with how do I preach this? How do I engage in interreligious and interfaith dialogue in a meaningful way that doesn't ignore that, that medieval veneer because unfortunately so much of our Islamophobia is rooted in the medieval period, as a number of you have already pointed out. I mean, there are medieval tropes about Muhammad comparing Muhammad to a dog. And that's in the medieval primary sources all over the place. There's a fresco that still is in, it's still on the walls to this day in a church in Italy where Muhammad is portrayed nude and in hell. Um, and that, is, that, that particular fresco is a major target of... Uh, uh, of some of the groups that would like to blow it up or, or, or take it down, but uh, yeah, uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of that relationship is not just rooted in the birth of the American Republic; it is rooted in Christian discourse that now has a, a thousand-year history behind it. Right. So anyway, I just wanted to add that since you asked if there are any medievalists in the group. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, sir. Maybe I'll just pick up, and I had other sets of comments, but, um, but on that, uh, Jerush and I were just on a panel this morning on teaching Islamic studies in theological institutions, and um, one of the things I was cautioning against is to see the continuities of the 
what we call a clash of civilizations narratives that, you know, Muslims and Christians and others just don't get along today because it's age old. So I caution actually against that because there are particular socio-political economic contexts in which we need to kind of view all of these things so that it doesn't necessarily feed into an age old uh, kind of clash of civilizations um, discourse, um, even even though we see similarities that have happened over time. Um, sorry, that was just a follow-up. I had a. Um, I want to thank the panelists and also just uh, raise a couple of things that weren't already. Um, one is just you know I, I thought that uh, the, with the Paris attacks, um, what's come up uh, significantly is you know whose lives matter and why some lives matter and others don't. And I've been teaching Judith Butler's Frames of War this past week in class, so it comes up over and over again. Um, and I was thinking about two things. One is a kind of spectacular, sporadic, spontaneous um, sense of violence versus the everyday violence. And we seem to differentiate people's lives based on that too. So somehow when it's Muslim-on-Muslim Muslim violence or black-on-black black violence, we categorize it as everyday violence. And therefore the people who are victims of those everyday violence are not worthy of our attention versus the people who come out of um, sporadic and spontaneous violence, which is seen as not the norm and therefore part of civilized uh, context, and so we don't pay attention to it. Um, so I thought maybe that might be another frame we want to uh, think about uh, the, the violence. And then the um, other point is about just how well-funded um, the Islamophobia industry is. Um, and so, you know, when we're, when we're trying to do nuance and we're trying to uh, narrate, we're not only narrating um, against these images which have psychological impacts, we're also kind of working um, in the context of heavily well-funded organizations that basically do nothing but um, Islamophobia, right? Um, and then lastly, on the activism part, I think um, it's really interesting that has to happen, of course, within the academy. Our disciplines do very different kinds of things. So um, political science, for instance, not all. Um, I also teach Wendy Brown stuff. She's also in political science, but I taught um, some other political scientists this week. And it's interesting because it, it's very functionalist and instrumentalist. So it's policy-driven. So there isn't nuance because at the end of the day, people are like, what are the policies that are going to keep us safe? So the nuance doesn't help. We can talk about it. We can nuance it. But what are the policies that we take at the end of the day? So I think there's a, a gap um, and a division between our disciplines as well within the academy. Even if there's religionists, for example, in political science, um, they often are very different from those who are in the humanities. So maybe something could be said about the activism that needs to happen right there. Thank you. Can I make a real quick clarification on medieval stuff? So I was saying um, the opposite of, I think, what you heard, Munir, which is I'm not saying that our current conflicts are explicable by going back to the Middle Ages, although I think certainly there are themes, tropes, and traditions and texts that are all important there um, and, and have an impact, as, as my colleague the dean said here. But um, what I was saying was there was an extraordinarily, an extraordinary intellectual effort by liberalism in the, 18th, uh, the 17th and 18th centuries to exclude Islam and Arabic language-based thought from what it means to be part of the West. 
And, and so I just want to say, so that, so that if you read, we're not talking about, you know, contrary to the convivencia where, like, you know, originally the idea that it is a, like, everyone got along and it was beautiful and we, you know. We, it, no, actually, I mean, it, it's true. I mean, there was a lot of violence. But as you know, Christians and Muslims were as likely to be on the same side of an army as opposing one another during the convivencia. And so by looking at the work of people like Brian Katlos and Maria Rosa Minacal, you know, and many others, what we can see is that, yes, there's all kinds of conflict, but it is a shared civilization. And I'm saying if you want to understand – one of the ways to combat the, the idea that there is a civilizational uh, divide is to explain exactly in what way Islam is part of Western civilization. There would not be a West as we know it without uh, Arabic language documents and, uh, you know, and Islam. And so I think we really do need you know, to, 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 to learn about that and come to tell people about it. Did you want to and respond let, to that, or can I? Sorry, okay. I, I just wanted to add also the um, reemergence or discovery for the first time. I mean, it's many of us who do Christian-Muslim relations of the early um, Christian-Muslim-Jewish debates. They weren't just dialogues uh, in Arabic during the Abbasid period, as another example of un, unutilized resources that sort of move beyond the Christendom versus Darul Islam. And that there's lots of interesting work thinking of Sidney Griffith's book on the church in the shadow of the mosque, but also constructive thinkers taking that, that kind of model forward. Or contemporary Arab Christians like your boss or your wife's boss. Did you want to respond to that point? Uh, otherwise, we'll... <laughs> no, no, sorry. No. Okay. You, okay. Um, so why don't we have this gentleman go first? Yeah. Uh, my name's Whit Bodman. I'm an Austin Presbyterian Seminary. Uh, two things. One is, as public intellectuals, how do you construct your identity, your public identity? For myself, sometimes I am somebody with a doctorate in Islamic studies, and that's what's important. Sometimes it's that I teach at a seminary. Sometimes it's that I can tell stories about living in the Middle East, first-hand experience. Sometimes it's that I'm a pastor. And different things make my authority in different places, and I have to adjust it according to the audience. So I'm wondering how you construct your identities, um, whether you find actually being a scholar uh, a deficit in some places. Uh, the second question is, again, focused on media. How do you engage the media? Do you have reporters come to your classroom? Do you develop relationships with reporters so that they know to turn to you. Um, how do you do that? Do you teach your students how to write op-eds or how to engage the media? Since so much of this is focused on the media, uh, uh, Dr. Lamptey, you mentioned the Auburn program. Not all of us can do that, but, uh, but we obviously do need to develop media skills, and I was wondering how you go about doing that. Yeah, so I mean, trial and error, right? <laughs> you, you learn by choosing the wrong one and then realizing that was the wrong one. No, so I think I would affirm that for myself, clearly, we have multiple identities. Sometimes I'm, you know, another example of a Muslim woman in a scarf, and that's the identity that I have to play for a certain 
perspectives. Sometimes I'm, you know, Dr. Lante, and sometimes I'm a mother, and sometimes I'm a teacher, and sometimes I'm someone who studied Catholic systematic thought. You know, so it's it's um, it's dependent on your context, and you figure that out by developing skill. I mean, after doing it enough times, you get pretty good at guessing, but then, of course, you have to be on your toes in the presence of people when they start signaling to you what is important. I would say just as a personal comment that um, I, where I find sometimes being a scholar or that academic hat to be a deficit is sometimes in the Muslim community because, of course, authority is constructed slightly different and there are some um, tensions in terms of Muslim women, in particular scholars, and how the how the authority is parlayed. I, I can go into more details. Probably most of you are are somewhat familiar with what I'm talking about. But just that that you know, are you too academic or in academy? Are you too confessional? You know, and so that's a you get it from both sides. And this is oh, this is just a doctor. She's not a a traditional religious scholar. Well, I mean, I happen to have that identity too. I studied that way as well. But in that setting, sometimes that is not the most authoritative identity in the Muslim community. Um, In reference to the second part of how I teach those skills, I make my students, right? I mean, we were talking about this morning. I make my students do presentations where I cut them off and interject. I make them write huff pieces um, and to try to hone those skills. I make them make little videotapes and things of the sort. Um, but of course I'm teaching in a particular context where people are going into pastoral roles or they're going into social justice roles or interreligious roles where they need those skills to respond on the fly. And of course they can write papers and do critical analysis and we do that as well. But they also need to know how to respond to someone in five minutes who has come to them with this question. In terms of um, relationships with the media, it depends on how you want to do it. I mean, Twitter's a great way to start cultivating a public voice. You have to consider what kind of public voice you want to have, and I would say to be careful with that. Um, And that also ties into your institutional placement, because I, I think that some people in certain institutions will have greater freedom in what they can do as a public intellectual than in other places. And that also has to do with where you are, if you're assistant professor, associate professor, full professor, what you can say publicly. Um, But, yeah, you can cultivate relationships. I mean, institutions have relationships. Where I am, we have relationships with certain media outlets. We also have contacts at media outlets. I have people who come to me on a routine basis. Um, And then, I mean, I know a lot of people who who write blogs, but also write for HuffPo. They get invited to do that. So you cultivate it over time. And I can add on the media part that I, I, I'm very critical of the media. Obviously, as someone who studies Islamophobia, I, I see that as one of the main sources in terms of perpetuating the narrative. But, but the more I've done interviews or engagements with the media, the more I, I've, I've, I've developed a little bit of a soft spot in my heart for some journalists. Uh, to the extent that when you develop relationships with journalists, you, you do see things from a different perspective. Though there are, they, they are under all sorts of pressures from a lot of different directions, including the uh, the corporate media, of course, to, to pitch stories in, in a certain way. Um, one incident that came to mind in the summer was that the Islamic Circle of North America was starting to put up these billboards in various cities across the country. And a lot of local news media thought this was a fascinating story that it was going to generate all this conflict. And they kept interviewing me. So in Portland and Sacramento and Cleveland. And, 
And it was just, but it was just kind of a non-story, I thought. But uh, I was like, all right, sure, I'll, we'll talk. But the first time I was interviewed was by a Reuters journalist in, in California. And all she had to ask me about that billboard took five minutes. But we were on the phone for two hours. And she was just bombarding me with basically Islam 101 questions. And, and, and I sensed, this is someone who really wants to know. I mean, and she's just in a circumstance where she doesn't even know who to go to. And, and it sort of made me think about religion scholars as resources um, for journalists in presenting ourselves that way. That, you know, if, you, if you're not sure about something to do with Islam and then you're telling the story, come to us. I'd rather you come to us than to the Islamophobia industry that we were talking about a while ago, right? Um, or, or someone along those lines. So I, I think that's very important. I was also interviewed the other day by, I teach in Iowa, at, by Cedar Rapids, Iowa, CBS reporter, um, on the responses to the Paris attacks, and particularly the decision by a lot of governors uh, to say they're not going to accept Syrian refugees. She did the entire piece on, from the perspective of Islamophobia. Uh, a, a word I don't hear very often in the media, uh, not too much, occasionally. But B, that this, this local Iowa reporter does an entire segment on Islamophobia, and I know she's going to catch flack for it. Uh, but after we were done and the camera was off, I, I just said, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, that, I, this is a courageous thing to do, and, and you ever need anything from me as a scholar of religion, just pick up the phone, send me an email or whatever, but sort of encourage journalists who are taking risk in an environment where they're not encouraged to take a lot of risks. So. Uh, yes, sir, one, yeah, one last question, comment, because I am mindful of the time here, and then we'll have a final reflections. Can I just add one thing on that? I think that that's the case, but I think that if you look at the way that social media is working and media then following in certain ways, is that you can create your own public persona and that that draws attention to people. And so you see a lot of people who do pieces, scholars who do pieces for HuffPo, a lot of, I mean, we've been invited after they've seen other things that have been written and they say, here, we'll give you free reign to post your stuff here if you'd like to do that. So you can cultivate through, you know, free outlets, your own kind of voice, and then that will draw the attention of other people. And I would say, I just want to underscore and the comment about being willing to act as a resource person and especially a resource person off the record to media because you can provide a lot of nuance. I mean, I have people that come to me for they want to ask kind of Islam 101 questions or interpretation questions about Islam, um, especially when they're writing book reviews of like the New York Times bestseller kind of Islam books. So you know which ones those are. Um, they're not the ones I write or probably any of us. I mean, well, maybe some of us. So, um, but will come and say, look, I'm having these feelings about this, and I'm reading it, and I'm thinking that. Can I t t talk to you off the record? I don't want you to, you know. And, and if you can make yourself available, that can be really formative. Given that we're just running out of time, does anyone on the panel, or all of you on the panel perhaps, have any final reflections or comments in light of this conversation that's taking place and the direction it's gone in, something you would want people to leave with? Uh, yeah, I guess I'll just have a, a brief uh, final reflection that has a little bit to do with, with sort of my personal location in the academy, which is what I started with, that I'm a scholar of early Christianity, but my degree says study of religion. So it's times like this that I think that we have to take uh, that sort of wider contextualization of what we do very seriously. And although it's great to do these myopic <laughs> books that focus on, you know, 10-year period in the ancient world or something like that, um, when there are very, very real um, and important 
opportunities for us to embrace our roles as public intellectuals and to do these sorts of writing blogs and things like that or interviews. Um, and I just think that, that we should embrace that and not see that as just one more thing that we have to do, but seek out those opportunities to do that so that we can be these, these allies um, or um, support other people that are, having to, are being called upon to sort of defend identities constantly and things like that. Well, I want to thank all the panelists for the, the giving their time today for this, this very important topic and this conversation. Thank you for coming and for your insights and reflections, and I hope you have a wonderful AAR. Thanks. Thank you.